G'day guys, I'm Aaron Schultz with episode 156 of the Outback Mind podcast. Appreciate you joining in once again. Uh, really grateful to have Max Bailey along with me today. Uh, some of you that follow football would remember Max, uh, probably the tallest player going around, uh, 206 centimetres. Um, got drafted in 2005 as the number one draft pick, number pick 18. Um, and he was at the Hawks for eight years and played 43 games. So had lots of injuries. You know, I really, I really followed Max's journey myself um, uh, early on in the piece with a lot of compassion because... Uh, he kept breaking down all the time and, um, you know, one knee would go, then the other would go and he just had this battle uh, until he finally got it right, you know, later on, sort of from 2000 and sort of 10 or 11 onwards and very much to his credit, he, he was able to play um, in a premiership in 2013, but then he also retired uh, at the grand final, like on the grand final, so never played another another game after that and um, was lucky enough to move into coaching and, um uh, become a senior coach of uh, the, the Hawks affiliate side, Box Hill, and um, had a really nice journey through the AFL, and now he's transitioned out of the system altogether. So we're going to talk a lot about um, you know the trials and tribulations of being an AFL player, but also what it was actually like for him mentally to be able to go through that uh, that period where he was... Uh, know uh, injured a lot uh, what that sort of uh, uh, the impact that had on him as an individual and uh, you know how he sort of moved through it to be able to be a successful player albeit a short playing career but uh, you know to be able to uh, I suppose reach the pinnacle in a grand final with his last game um, is a tremendous feat that a lot of people don't uh, don't get to achieve so I guess he could have continued on and um, and battled through, but um, I guess he saw that as just recognition for what he'd uh, what he'd been through. So you know we're gonna gonna have a good conversation about that and everything in between. So really hope you enjoy the chat. So I just want to make special mention to Green Nutritionals who support the podcast. So if your diet is lacking in some area, I really encourage you to check out their website. They provide pardon me provide green organic superfoods which are sourced from the best places around the world. So. Um, yeah, certainly uh, can give you a boost physically and mentally, that's for sure. All organic and pure and natural products. So please Google greennutritionals.com.au or go to the website, I should say, greennutritionals.com.au. Uh, their products are available at all good health, stores, uh, health food stores around Australia, but also online, so you can grab them if you're living remotely and have them delivered out there. So um, yeah, good stuff. Really appreciate your support of them. Alrighty. Appreciate you listening in. Appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to let me know, best email is support at outbackmind.com.au. Max, how are you going, mate? Going well, thanks, Aaron. Good to, good to have a chat. Yeah, appreciate it. You just got back from Noosa, is that right? Yes, we had my, uh, my wife, Rachel, and two daughters, two young girls, had 10 days up there. So it was, it was nice to get out of Melbourne for one and nice to be in the water and in the sun. Unreal, mate. No, it's a good time of year up here. It's starting to cool down a little bit, but um, uh, certainly, um, you know, you get your, your bit of a muggy period through February, March, I reckon, but uh, sort of around Noosa and where I am, it doesn't sort of hang around too long, which is great. So, uh, Yeah, oh, we're fortunate. Um, we got some really good weather and, you know, it felt, I think we felt a bit guilty being up there with all the, the floods going on. Yeah. But it was... 
you know, it was just a good, such a good environment for uh, for kids and to have a have a break as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, mate, is your wife much shorter than you? She is. Yeah, she's <laughs> a fair bit shorter. Than me. She's probably. <laughs> I'm uh, freakishly tall. She's just just uh, your normal normal sort of height. <laughs> Average. So, are you about two hundred and six centimeters? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, spot oh, on. So, so how old were you when you sort of shot up like that? I think it was probably late high school. I was always one of the taller kids growing up through primary school and early high school, but not till I reckon year eleven and twelve. I really, really started to shoot up. Mm, unreal, mate. I'm still trying to get there and I'm 50. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's going to happen, but anyway. My, 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 my son shot up and, uh, yeah, he, he sort of uh, is pretty tall, but, yeah, I sort of, uh, don't know, I'm sort of in the shorter bracket, which is, um, yeah, uh, anyway, got its challenges at some, t- at some stages, but anyway, all good. <laughs> Mate, so I'm really interested to hear about your upbringing in, in regional WA. What was it like and where were you from again originally? The town's called Narrambeen. It's yeah. about 300, 350k straight east from Perth. Yep. So it's a wheat belt area, wheat and sheep farming. We grew up on a, a wheat and sheep farm probably 20 minutes out of town. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, spent, spent my childhood there until I think grade grade six or seven we moved to Perth my um, two sisters I'm in the middle I've got a sister who's a year older and another sister who's two years younger um, I just I, know, I just remember being um, you know outside all the time uh, on motorbikes in, in vehicles chasing sheep it was I, I like to say it's, it's a great way to grow up I'm, I probably wouldn't want to be doing that now as, a, as an adult and that being your profession when you're yeah, it's a tough, bloody tough industry, but mm. it's a great way to grow up. Mm, yeah, mate, I'm from a similar uh, uh, environment, like where I'm from in, in Western Victoria is wheat and sheep farming uh, primarily. Yep. And uh, yeah, I know, I know what you're around pretty well, mate. So uh, did you ever get to, uh, did you ever get to um, uh, put a ring around the sheep's nuts? Yeah, that was, that was one of the good fun jobs and, <laughs> and docking the tails and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of talk out there about how uh, animal friendly it is, but certainly um, I don't know. It's just the way things were done, and I, I, it was uh, got to see a lot of a lot of different things. That when I went, when I moved to Perth and went to school in Perth, a lot of the kids there hadn't seen or even heard of before. So, yeah. as I said, a great way to grow up, and I, you'd probably agree, I'd, I'd imagine. Yeah, oh no doubt. No, we we made our own fun back then, mate. It was really good, but yeah, motorbikes were a big part of it, and. Um, it was it was a pretty simple way to live, you know. Um, not not yes. distracted by the mobiles and all those sorts of things back then, and it was uh, pretty carefree. Now, how did you find it when you when you actually had to move to the big smoke? Did you want to leave, or did you uh, happily go? Well, my um, it was a bit forced upon us. My my dad was killed in a car accident, so he was you know being the main breadwinner. Um, we yeah we just mum decided to take us to Perth where her family were. Um, be around a bit more support so yeah I mean it's funny how probably funny is the wrong word but how things work out because I I think if we hadn't have done that if dad hadn't have died and we hadn't moved to Perth and I probably would be sitting here having this conversation with you I'd probably be on the farm 
um, doing doing that still. So it's it's amazing how it works out. Yeah, I guess, mate, and that's that's a, a real. Mate, first of all, first I'm I'm tremendously sorry to hear that, but um, it's amazing how you know when when um, challenge hits you or something you know goes wrong, how growth can happen in another area, I suppose as well. Well, especially when it takes you somewhere where you wouldn't have chosen to go yourself, if you're sort of forced into mm. particular ways. And yeah, I, I certainly um, probably like a lot of people tend to sit back into comfort areas so i that's why i imagine i'd still be there now if if that was the case and life would be extremely different yes yeah no doubt mate did you play footy in that back there then yeah i played um played for the the, the town narrabeen as a youngster um not uh, actually i was thinking about this earlier um i don't know why i played football necessarily i, I don't think i was i wasn't particularly talented at it as a youngster and I don't remember um, getting a lot of the ball, so, <laughs> so yeah. I, I think I was there because my mates were there. Because in a country town, probably similar to you, that's yeah. you know, if you're not working, you're playing footy or you're at the pub. And I was too young to be at the pub, so footy was the yep. the thing where all the all the young blokes were, and that's just what I wanted to be around them. Yeah, it's very similar. It was that and cricket, you know, primarily. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, just sort of flowed on from one to the other, and. Uh, yeah, I remember you know going home from uh, a blue light disco one night, and then just saying to a guy, "I'll come for a kick in the morning," and ended up uh, you know playing under sixteens in uh, the freezing cold, you know. And uh, I sort of played a little bit before that, but yeah, mate, it was was one of those things. If you you wanted something to do, you played football. And back then, we were probably judged a little bit in the country, you know, depending on our ability and that sort of thing. And I was probably a bit like you, like I didn't uh, didn't have um, a lot of kicks or anything, but it was just good to be out there. You know, running around, and uh, I used to sort of hide and let all the others do the work. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're probably pretty similar in that regard. <laughs> but as you got taller, you probably wouldn't have been able to. <laughs> but anyway, so 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 what happened there, mate, with regards to to going to Perth? So you sort of transitioned into school, and then you sort of started to play a bit of footy, or did it happen later when you sort of got a bit bit bigger and stronger and started to maybe get asked to play footy because of your height, perhaps? Yeah, it was a bit later. I, I played a bit of junior footy again once I moved to Perth, but again, I, I wasn't. I certainly wasn't one of the talented ones. I just I was there because that's what my mates were doing, and I I think I've always enjoyed being part of a team. So mm. wasn't so interested. You know, I, I played a little bit of tennis, but wasn't so interested in the individual sports more than being part of a team. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I did that. Did that for a bit. I while I was having some growth spurts, I broke. You know, a couple of collarbones and a couple of other things. So I stopped playing footy probably till, um, I think, till I went back to the farm. So I, I did finish my schooling in Perth and probably hadn't played footy after 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, went back to the farm after finishing school at, at 17 to work with a family friends and a, a good mate of mine work on their farm for a year because I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, in terms of going to uni or, or anything else, I thought I'd have a gap here and back to back to where I grew up and, and got to playing footy there because again in the country that's that's what you did and mm. um, from there you know, played a year went to uh, went back to to Perth after that year on the farm and decided to study sports science at Edith Cowan University in, in Tindall 
and was asked to play down at West Perth in their their Colts team. So that was the first taste of being a you know a representative side. And I don't again, I keep I probably keep harping on the fact I don't think it was because I was particularly skilled or a good player. It was because of my height and I was relatively coordinated. So mm. that um, that ended up taking me a fair way. Mm. And um, just on the year that you spent back in um, in the country, they're playing. How was that for you? Were you sort of welcomed into that sort of club and side pretty well? And did you find, um, you know, the community spirit of uh, country footy pretty good? Yeah, yeah, I had, I had an absolute ball there. I Growing up with two sisters and, and obviously mum and without dad, I was a lot of the time the only boy involved in a lot of social activities. So mm. going back to work on a farm with my, my good mate, um, Jim and, and his brother and his dad and being around other blokes was was the first time I'd really had that for quite a while. Mm. So I had that part of it I really enjoyed and then enjoyed reconnecting with the town where my dad grew up and everyone, you know, a lot of people knew my dad but I hadn't had that opportunity as a um, as a sort of teenager or older older male to mm. get into that environment. So it was, it was really good reconnecting with my dad's mates and then um, kids who I'd grown up with but then hadn't had a lot to do with for, you know, 10 years since I'd been in Perth or just under 10 years. So the two of those things really were, I don't know, I, that's what I recall really enjoying and being around that male environment with with blokes who were um, who knew my dad and, and sort of had that connection. Mm. Mate, um you would have probably grown up pretty quickly out there. Was the social side of things pretty good? And did they actually allow you to have a beer after the game and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> um, it was good, mate. Like I, we we didn't have a. a there was no policeman in the town, so you'd, you'd get the 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 police from the next town coming occasionally. But yeah. it was pretty. Yeah, you're able to have a beer at the pub as a 17 year old without any questions being asked. Mm-hmm. And after the game, I still still laugh about it and you know I, I played a couple of country, country footy games here in Victoria after I retired from AFL and it was exactly the same feel where mm. um, you know there's guys having a, a dart at half time and <laughs> there's <laughs> yeah. a block of beers in the room straight after the game and it's just this yeah. it's not about the footy it's about being around each other even though you know it's a bit of a macho environment and, and you'd know what farmers are like in terms of not mm. being overly um, open emotionally so it wasn't yes. about that just just being around together was a really good thing and I think farming can be a pretty isolating experience so yes. because everyone can be so spread out um, geographically so you get this time this one time during the week where you can come together and, and be around each other and it involves a bit of alcohol which is not always the best thing but that was a, a great environment to be in. Mm. Yeah I agree mate it's um, yeah certainly uh, I I've had a love, I've had a love, love, hate relationship because you know you're still developing as a young fellow, you know, mentally and so forth and physically. Uh, and alcohol is probably not a great thing for the body, but but primarily yeah. in in that environment, it's um you know it's it's part of the culture. And if it's done well and you respect it and all those sorts of things, and you don't allow yourself to get too loose, then it's a, it's a great uh, way to build camaraderie and companionship and all those sorts of things. But yeah, I've seen. Some some real um, you know dire consequences with country blokes and booze, and I'm sure you you may have uh, you know heard of stories and that too. So, 
you know, if we're going to do it in those sorts of environments, it's just got to be done uh, with respect. Otherwise, you know, you can um, you can take it for granted. And you know, I know it's like living in a or being in a town where you've got no coppers, and you sort of uh, yep. you get a bit uh, a bit crazy too. But um, it sounds like you you move through it pretty well, mate, which is great. Yeah, I think I I think I just had good people around me. So that the family, the the, the Cowans, with the family that I was living with, and they were they were really solid people. Whereas as you said, you see some pretty dicey things um, amongst other people, and yeah, a lot, a lot can go wrong and did go wrong. But fortunately, I had I had some really good people around me, kind of just guiding me in the right direction. Yeah, good stuff, mate. So, um, so you, you went back to was it East Perth you played or West Perth? West Perth, yeah, yeah. I suppose they they probably don't like each other, East and West Perth, but. Um, <laughs> certainly, uh, you must have progressed pretty well from there and then sort of come through the system and obviously, uh, you know, I just would like to know, I'm sure a lot of people listening um, would like to know what it was like when you sort of, you know, heard your name called and knew you were sort of going to play AFL and whether you did want to stay in WA and play or whether going to the Hawks was a good thing for you. Oh, look, I think I, I was pretty naive to the fact that uh, I was going to get drafted. I so I'd moved to moved back to Perth after that year on the farm to study at uni. I was living at uni and, and playing at West Perth in their their Colts or under 19s team as a 19 or 18 year old, and um, just getting you know used to being Perth, used to living on my own, used to looking after myself and, and getting to play footy. And um, I think having a year of country footy, senior footy helped a little bit. Yeah. Um, being used to playing against bigger bodies and then going to play against guys my own age, I kind of had a little bit more confidence than I may have otherwise. Mm. And I'd, I'd grown a bit more and started to fill out a little bit, although I was still a, a fair uh, string bean <laughs> by the time we got to Hawthorne. But um, just landed in a really good, a really good spot because of, again, the, the people that were at at West Perth at the time, so a lot of my really close mates now are from the guys I met and only had a year with at West Perth there playing together because we weren't a particularly good team, but we we just gelled really well and had a, had a great time together. So, um, and we had a, a good coach, Gavin Bell, who's now football manager at the West Coast Footy Club. He was he was our coach, so it was again being around some really good people, not through any of my own doing just being in this this situation that seemed to help me really well and, and I played I think I played nine or ten games that year because I had um, a few injuries and a, a bit of illness that kept me out but that was enough to show some of the recruiters that hey this this kid who's 206 centimeters as you said and um, he moves moves relatively well could run um, and had had decent coordination they um, took a bit of interest so out of the blue after having that year at West Perth I got an invite to the the draft camp in Canberra and that was the first point where I thought oh okay this is this is this could actually happen mm-hmm. before then I had no absolutely no idea because I hadn't spoken to any recruiters I hadn't um, spoken to any clubs it was just I was playing footy and having having a good time with my mates really mm. Mm, amazing mate so tell me um so was it that year you got drafted or did you have another year back in Perth before you got picked up? No, that, that one year, so that was 2004. And again, 
nothing of my doing, but just being in the right circumstance. Um, Hawthorne had, I think, three or four picks in the first round that year of um, 2000, sorry, 2005, it was when I was in Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, so the end of that year, 2005, Hawthorne, had, it was after Clarko's first year as coach, they finished near the bottom, so they had these, these picks, and they took Xavier Ellis early on, Grant Birchall, uh, and then myself at 18. So I think, look, I think I thought I was going to Collingwood. They, they're the ones who showed the most interest. And um, But all, all the people I'd spoken to were, were saying, you know, you'd probably be a late late in the draft or maybe, maybe a rookie pick. Mm. And I think, you know, you'd probably have to talk to Chris Pelkin and Gary Bacanara. But I think they had these, they had so many picks in the first round, they could take a bit of a flyer on, a long-term project, which I was always going to be, being mm. 206 centimetres and, and probably 90 kilos. Mm. Um, so just being, yeah, the right circumstance, the right sort of right place, right time, Hawthorne took a flyer on me at, at 18. And so within, you know, within a weekend, I'd gone from living at university and um, playing footy at West Perth to flying over to, to Melbourne to be part of the Hawthorne Footy Club. And it, um, the draft was very different back then. It was... I think it was 7.30 in the morning in, in WA time that it was on and mm. you couldn't watch it. It was on the radio. So I, I was having a shower and my mates were driving past going to footy training, turning their horns out in front, um, yelling, go Hawks. And that's that's how I found out where I was going. <laughs> mm, unbelievable. Okay. It brings back memories because I was working closely with Grant Birchall's uncle. Um, okay. Yeah, when he got picked up. And um, I, I know Grant is being a really sensible young fella. And yep. um, we just had a, uh, uh, you know, uh, an understanding and a, and a sense then that he was going into an environment where he was going to fit in. You know, yeah. he wasn't going to go to a club where there was a heap of yahoos and, you know, he would have been a bit of a black sheep. So I could sort yeah. of, you know, sort of pick back then that they had a bit of an agenda with regards to the quality of people they'll bring into their, into their um, uh, system, I suppose. Yeah, I think when you, when you talk to those recruiters, that was certainly a big part of it. Um, and it is, it certainly is now too. It's, it's, it's are they, um, are they a good footballer? But probably first and foremost, are they, are they a decent person? And are they going to contribute to a good culture, or are they going to be detrimental to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you would have found it pretty well when you got there with things sort of organised and that, or was it a, a funny environment to go into at first? Oh, again, it, it, you know, I just being looked after being around some really good people so I jumped on a flight they, they called me Saturday morning said yep well welcome to the club we've got your flight um, tomorrow the Sunday so jump on and we'll see you over here at training on Monday and I yes. I stayed with a guy called Tim Clark who was um, part of the leadership group at the footy club at the time and uh, one of my really good mates now he was he was playing me and, and the, all the players who were drafted would go and stay with these senior players for the first you know, three or four weeks of their time there. Mm-hmm. So, um, picked up, met, met Tim at the airport as I got off the plane. Um, took me, took me to their place, and his his influence on me was amazing because he come from an athletics background. His dad had played a lot of footy at, at Geelong, and his brother had also played at Carlton and Geelong. So, a really professional person, a really good person, a really well grounded person, and that was my introduction to AFL footy and. And the Hawthorne Footy Club, so I was in. I was in really good hands with Tim. How did you go when you had to front up the training and that? Was it like hard straight away, or did they sort of ease you into it? 
No, they, they eased you, eased us into it. We were only ever expected to complete sixty percent of a pre-season program then. Mm. So um, it was about assimilating in, and it was, you know, I just remember the first training session having, you know, kicking the ball to Shane Crawford and then getting the ball off Peter Everett and, mm. and then handballing to Joel Smith and these guys who I'd watched on TV mm. so much. I just, I was just like a big fan running around, probably couldn't wipe the smile off my face, the fact that I was getting to do this um, and getting paid to do it with guys I idolised. So it was, it certainly, it got tougher, obviously, but I, those early those early days were about assimilating and, it was it was amazing to be part of that sort of that sort of environment. Incredible, mate. Um, how was Shane Crawford to you when you first rocked up there? Oh, I can't talk highly enough of, of Shane as a um, as a person, and he's just yeah. I mean, he was obviously um, as absolute superstar of a player and one of the most recognised players. But you could sit there and talk to him um, like he was just an ordinary guy. And, a really funny guy, um, really engaging. Certainly, no level of arrogance that he thought he was. You know, couldn't mix with the, the rookie guys who had just rolled in. He was, mm. um, yeah, just an absolute gentleman and, and star of a person. Mm. And very much a country person too, you know. And uh, I yes. think he, he valued that really well. And that's where a lot of his uh, uh, empathy sort of come from. You know, he, he wasn't uh, someone that. Uh, I guess, um, you know, had ego and he'd communicate with people at a, at a, at a solid level where, you know, he, you felt uh, connected and understood. And I think, you know, going into an environment like that to have uh, people like him around and, uh, and so forth, which are quite level-headed, would have been uh, pretty pretty good for you, I guess. Yes, yeah, it definitely was. It, it, was, a, it was a pretty interesting time at the footy club because they were evolving from what they had been previous to, to Clarko getting there mm. into what, you know, the club turned out to be and still is today a really good organisation. So um, it was a, yeah, I was probably pretty fortunate landing at that time. Had I had I landed there the year before or year before that, it would have been a diff- really different experience, I think. Mm. And, and, like, who was there then as far as other Ruckman, so Spider Everett and... Uh just trying to think, who else might have been there? Simon Taylor, perhaps, or who else did you have around there that time? Yeah, Simon was there, and, and Robbie Campbell was the other one. Oh yeah, I, I, he was um, short. I thought for a ruckman, but anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was. He was. Yeah, not. I think he was one ninety nine centimeters, but um, mm. good, good sized bulk. So he was able to get under a lot of other rucks. But yeah, Spider was there for I think the first year or two that I was there, and then. Robbie and Simon were real the main the main duo for quite a few years and through two thousand eight, um, two thousand nine, and then kind of transitioned uh, over to myself and Brent Renoff um, and a couple of guys after that. So, mate, like obviously going through those years would have been pretty tough for you because you had those injuries. Um, you know, I think it was one sort of after the other and. I can only imagine what it's like when you, you sort of think you get yourself right and then all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden something else, um, you know, goes wrong. You know, you sort of get a, to, a, to a peak of, um, of confidence and that and all of a sudden it gets taken away from you. You know, what was it like with regards to those, those first initial injuries and, and how did that sort of play it on your, on your own well-being? Well, I, I really recall the three ACLs 
been very different each time. Um, the first time I was, it was the start of my second pre-season, it was early January, so I'm 20 or 21 at this stage and and did it then and I was really in the hands of the physios and doctors because I'd, I'd never had this sort of injury before. Mm. Um, had never, you know, didn't know what to do, didn't know what was expected of me necessarily. So I was just listening to everything the doctors and physios said and doing just that. Mm. Um, that, you know, it took some time to get, get going. It was 18 months before I, I played again. Mm. And it never, that one never felt quite right for whatever reason. You know, it's, um, I had, that was a hamstring graft I had for that one. And, and maybe it never quite took or just don't know. But um, went from that, got back to playing at Box Hill Reserves and did it straight away again. Mm. So that second time, I just remember, you know, being pretty distraught on the day because it'd been 18 months of a grind and to have to go through the game straight away with, you know, only getting five minutes of footy was pretty devastating. But I, I remember going, okay, what? Well, I, I know what's expected now. I, I kind of know what to do. It was a little bit more on my shoulders. Um, still, obviously, a lot of support from the doctors and physios and, and Andrew Russell in the strength and conditioning, but it was kind of like I, I could stop holding their hands so much. Mm, yes. um, mentally, mentally, it really helps. The first time, as I said, I, I didn't know what was expected, so it was just like, well, I just, I just get through it and I was fine. The second one, mentally, a little bit tougher, but I was in, I was living with a host family. Um, with the King family at the time, and they were just amazing to be in that support network. Mm. Um, you know, had I been living on my own or with a partner on my own, I reckon it would have been a really different story. But I had obviously the footy side, and then coming home to where I was living and having this other network outside of footy, it really helps to distract me in a way and get my mind off what I was going through. So yeah. I think that was really pivotal plus the fact that I, I knew a bit more of what, what I had to do and could be a bit more self-sustainable. Mm, yeah, yeah, um, well, well said, mate. Well, I guess, yeah, well, that's it. If you're going home on your own and you're spending too much time uh, contemplating, then that can have a real um, effect on uh, on your balance and uh, the way you recover too as well, I guess. Yeah, I think it would. And, look, it, it wasn't all smooth sailing. There were certainly some patches where... It wasn't going so well, but I just I just remember um, having having those other people around me, and it was it was that family. It was people I'd met through that family outside the footy where I could get away from it, and it wasn't it wasn't just all about being in the footy bubble and everyone yeah. asking you, you know, how's your knee. That that was that was really important for me. Yes. And I guess it would be pretty hard to be not recognised in Melbourne, being the, the, the height that you were, uh, and getting getting questions asked you when you went to the shops and that sort of thing as well. I'd imagine. So, yeah, uh, that that probably came a little bit later when I was got to playing. Um, but yeah, it, um, well, Melbourne, as you know, is certainly a football bubble, so it's it's hard to escape from mm. from that environment sometimes. Mm. Yeah, no doubt, mate, absolutely. But, uh, you know, sort of going through all that hardship, you know, when you finally cracked it, what was it like to be able to, you know, play consistently? And obviously, um, you know, the faith that the club had in you obviously would have been, um, um, you know, restored uh, within there. 
um, I suppose uh, minds, but also in your own that you could um, you could make it and sort of you know start to make some achievements as well. Yeah, it was. I I, I think it took me a bit of time. I, I'd missed I'd missed a good three years of football, and and the rules had changed a lot in that time. So I remember take you know, coming back to playing, and I had to learn parts of the game again that I hadn't had to go through before mm. with regards to those rule changes. Mm. Um, I'd miss out on being available to be to play in the 2008 Grand Final, so that was a real motivating factor to say, well, you know, we're potentially going to be in this position a bit more. I want to, I want to be there this time. I don't want to be um, the one on the sidelines not able to contribute to the team. So there was there was the, the difficulties of getting used to playing again and certainly getting confident again, mm. um, but the motivating factor of yeah, well. This, this team's heading in the right direction. I, I certainly, I don't want to be on the sidelines for the next one. And that, yeah, that was got a bit tougher because I, I remember, I remember when I got back out to playing, and my first AFL game back was against Richmond, and just had an absolute ball being back out there. Mm. And then we were playing Essendon the next week, and we had to win that game to get into the the finals. You know, we'd, we'd won the premiership the year before, two thousand eight. Um, we didn't want to be this side who won the flag and then didn't make finals the next year. Mm. Um, and now I was out there able to contribute and playing against Essendon at the MCG round 22 was like, this is, how good is this? Um, and then I did my other knee in that game, you know, a quarter or less than a, less than a quarter into the game. So to go from that real high of I'm part of this team, I'm contributing, we're, we're going in the right direction to thinking my career was over was... Mm. Uh, yeah, absolutely gut wrenching. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, how um, how was the support mechanism around you at that time when uh, when that actually happened? Well, it was it was good. I mean, I built I built a pretty good network through that you know, that family that I'd lived with through the footy club. I'd, I'd now been in Melbourne for four or five years, um, so it was good. But um, you know, you can. The tough thing was not knowing whether I was going to get another chance. I was always, I was always going to have another crack, but I was out of contract, and to be honest, didn't think the club would 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 keep me around because why are you going to keep around a guy who can't contribute on the park consistently? Like the end of, at the end of the day, it's a performance game, and, mm. and I wasn't able to perform. So the hardest thing, as good as the support was, the hardest thing was just not knowing for a few weeks whether I was going to get the chance again. And uh, they obviously like sort of uh, come to you after the grand final and sort of said we're going to we're going to keep you on the list. Yeah, they they um, again just just circumstances working out that uh, Robbie Campbell at the time he he suffered a, a his knee injury was uh, was quite bad so it looked like he was going to battle to get back out there so they. They knew I wasn't going to be able to play the next year, but after that, I was going to be able to contribute, and they they needed a ruckman. So mm. it was just, um, yeah. I mean, I, a big part of my life. Uh, I'm not a believer in fate or anything like that. Like I, I'm a Christian. I believe in God, and, and there's life works out for um, in strange ways sometimes. And that's mm. all the way through my story. It's been about being in the right place at the right time, not through any of my doing. Mm. I, I believe it's just. Um, 
how it was meant to go for whatever reason, you know. Mm, yeah, mate. Oh, look, yeah, and letting go and just surrendering to what actually is. Uh, that that's that's a gift and secret in itself, isn't it? You know, because um, we sort of touched it before, like the door opening uh, through uh, through circumstances and what that might have actually looked like for you. So if you go in, into that with uh, an open mind rather than a, a closed mind and, and a negative um, approach, then, you know, you, you allow yourself uh, opportunities uh, and, and, and for them to come in. But, you know, so many of us get stuck when we... Uh, when we go into the, you know, what could-haves uh, or the should-haves and those sort of thing, and we get stuck there, and that can really affect our mental health. So, yeah, you really need to be proud of yourself to, to actually uh, acknowledge that and, uh, and and use that opportunity as you did. Yeah, I, I agree, mate. And I, I think it was... I, I do remember thinking quite often through through the three injuries that when, when you step back and... When I could step back and have a look at it, I was... I was getting paid to um, to train and rehab, and you know, if that was as bad as it got, if I never got back to playing, I, I had that opportunity just to do that. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, I was in a position um, by the grace of God that I was able to get back out and play. And, and you know, a lot of guys go through having talked to a lot of guys through that and since that who go through ACL injuries um, playing amateur sport, and they have to. You know, do the work themselves. They don't have the the support in terms of physios, doctors, the gym, that that environment, um, and they have to take care of a family or look after. You know, pay the rent as well. Mm. I was in such a blessed position. So I, when I was able to step back from it, I, I could realise how good I actually had it. Mm, that's true, mate. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, for people listening, I just think there's so much wisdom in that because. Uh, we can always go to you know the the negative and um, and that quite quickly. That's the main the way the mind will take us. You know we call it dark energy or light energy, whatever you want to, uh, whichever way you want to go. But if you can sort of stay with that light energy, then all of a sudden you can um, you can actually open yourself up to opportunities, as I mentioned before. And um, it sounds yeah. that like you know you you obviously had some beliefs and so forth before then, and that that sort of took you to a place of higher awareness and consciousness as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's something about um, there's something about having a belief or a faith or whatever it is beyond yourself that I mm. I know helped me a heck of a lot and, I, and other people I talk to um, quite similar as well. Mm, that, that's true, and you know, with regards to, to mental health, just getting off you know the footy subject for a minute, um, being able to have a practice or have something that gets you grounded every day and gets you back to a sense of belonging, gratitude, all that type of stuff, I think so important now more than ever um, to be able yep. to get through the challenging environments and so forth we're in, whether that be in life or in the workplace or a footy club or whatever it may be, because if you get to know yourself outside your head, you know, back to your heart again, I really believe that's where life, you know, can be lived from and um, and fearlessly lived from. And I just think that, that that actually helps us, you know, transcend into a higher a uh, higher way of being if we're actually uh, able to do that on a daily basis and you know with with that good mental health comes would you agree oh, i do agree Aaron. yeah but um, and probably having kids more recently has helped me with that as well that the being you know um mindfulness is the the buzzword at the moment but just being having an awareness of of how you're actually thinking and feeling and doing rather than mm. going through it um, you know, reacting rather than responding. Yeah, 
I think that that becomes a really good practice to to make part of your life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to get to the point of you know your your well being strategy and that now, but uh, like later in the in the conversation we'll be touching it now. So you know post footy and everything, I, I think you probably do things on a daily basis that keep you pretty grounded. Yeah, yeah, and that's been that's been a work in progress. I right? like it. I, I speak to a lot of people who have the same sort of feeling like uh, if I could go back 10 years or 15 years and tell myself the things I know now wouldn't mm. that be great yes. but but I'm also a strong believer in well at 20 years of age I, I probably wouldn't have listened to someone like me talk to me um, yes. about this stuff because I had no no context for it you know, you've got to go through a bit of a bit of the crap to learn okay that's what works or that doesn't um, that's what that means that's what that means it, you can't just take it all um, from someone else's opinion, you got to go through a bit of yeah. the, the crappy time. So, yeah. so now I certainly know. Um, yeah, I, I've got to, I've got to do certain things to make sure that, like exercise. If I don't, if I don't exercise in some way, like sweat in some way during the day, mm. um, I know that I, I sort of battle towards the end of the day with with my energy and with my um, temper as well and my emotions. So. Yes. There's certainly the, the exercise part. There's there's being around other people. Um, the last two and a half years has taught me that in spades. That working from home for the best part of two years, uh, you know, really could have and and nearly did put me in a bit of a hole. But mm. um, being having a group of of people to be you know good good friends to be around from time to time, and, and I needed a bit each day. Um, with my wife, with my kids, with mates. If I don't have that, then I, I really battle as well. Mm, the support's yeah, really important, mate. Um, and, and getting back to it, Max, like we are meant to be in community, aren't we? We are meant to be around other other beings, just like everything else in, in nature, right? Like everything else in nature is in, yep. in tribes, herds, flocks, whatever you want to call them. But, you know, humans are yep. no different. We're not meant to be separate. And, uh, you know, it's important to have those communication structures. I'm just curious... With regards to you know the religion, did that come into your life like fairly early or? Yeah, it was it was through mum. So we lived in on the farm and we'd go to Perth from time to time, and mum was connected to a church there. So I, I grew up with that as a background. But as soon as I moved back to the farm after school, and you know I, I was able to make my own choices, it was like I, I didn't want a, a bar of that because I mm. I hadn't bought into it from my own choice. You know, been been almost forced upon me yes um so for that period up until about 25 i i, I went away from it completely thinking i don't i don't want a bar on that and then uh and then at 25 i started to think you know i do believe i do believe there's a higher power um mm. it's not just a, this life's not just about us so i mm. i began asking myself the questions and and getting involved in in a church and being around other people slowly um, to, to bring that back in. But, you know, it was my own choice now. It wasn't something that was forced on me. And, and I think that was a really important uh, thing to go through, that it had to be my choice. And I think for everyone, you got to – these things have got to be your choice. You can't you can't be forced into a corner. Otherwise, we, we all kind of get our back up when that's the case. agree. And that's, that's so relevant, Max, because we have – uh, you know, there's a great book, um, David Hawkins, I think, wrote it called Power Versus Force, you know. 
Okay. Yeah, and, and if you're stepping into that that you know that power within yourself, which we've all got, then yep. things become open. If you're forcing, then usually you get forced against, you know. And uh, yeah. um, uh, it just goes to show. And I'll use Richmond as an example, like how they were forcing so much, but when they actually allowed and they become open from their hearts more, yeah. then all of a sudden, yep. you know, the results come. I just think that's so. Uh, relevant and it's available to all of us in life. We're just being blocked from that uh, that that uh, consciousness, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Richmond's a, a great case study almost for this stuff. And you know, to go from like from a football sense at least, when they they went from having a game plan that was they were trying to turn their players into into the game plan, you know, make their players fit into the game plan in some in some ways a square peg in a round hole and they flipped from what you hear they flipped to saying well, what are the strengths of our players and how can we build a game plan based on that mm. and all of a sudden they're able to be you know their players are able to play to their natural ability make choices that they naturally do rather than force into things yes. you look at the result and it's, it's just remarkable yes absolutely mate it's no different than someone in the workplace you know, where we're, where, where we're trying to, you know, get people to do roles and give them KPIs and things like that. And we're actually blocking their capabilities and their talents and their natural gifts in many ways, you know. And um, very much the same as school, you know, we're, we're not actually giving, yep. giving young people the, the chance and the ability to be themselves. And, and that yeah. leads into mental health problems because you're disconnected, I guess, as well. Yeah, oh, mate, I, I really agree with that. So we better get back to footy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, we can, we can definitely go on about this sort of stuff for a while. But, mate, um, but um, just just uh, coming through and obviously, like, hitting your straps and, and getting into um, the position to win a premiership, I just want to know sort of how that unfolded for you and, uh, and um, you know, where you sort of... Uh, got to as a player and as an individual and obviously getting to that 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 grand final and what that was actually like for you well it was again a process so it was 2009 i i re-injured i injured my right acl in that game against Heston. i spent 2010 on the sidelines got back to playing in 2011 and you know i had a somewhat of a decent year in terms of playing in the AFL side. So I think I played around 16 games. We lost a prelim to Collingwood um, really late in the game. And then I, I fractured my wrist or my scapula, which um, had a few complications with. So I, again, I missed a chunk of the next year, got back in team late, but couldn't get a run on and, and couldn't stay in the side. So the, the team goes into the 2012 grand final. And I'm sitting there with um, memories of 2008 going, oh, this is not meant to happen. I'm, I'm on the sidelines again when the, the guys are going to win another one. Have I, you know, have I missed my opportunity? Um, and, and unfortunately, we lose that game to Sydney and some things change. In 2013, I'm, I'm able to play the, the majority of the year in the side. And I get to, we get to a point probably a third of the way through the season and my knee is starting to give me real strife my my right knee which i've had um two two acl reconstructions on and have lost quite a bit of cartilage mm. so i'm i'm battling to train and i'm battling to um be effective in games and get get some scans on it and 
turns out that okay, well, this is this thing's gone downhill faster than what we thought it was going to, and um, I get the news that you know you, you're probably going to be done at the end of this year. Mm. So going from there, and that was a meeting with Andrew Russell, who's head of uh, strength and conditioning, and and Al Clarkson. They both said, well, look, we um, we need you this year because we're um, you know this spot in the side. We we believe you're the um, you're going to help us win. So it's about managing you through this year to make sure um, we can get to the that last that last game in the grand final, and ideally we win that. So that was this plan that um, Al and, and Andrew both talked to me about. And, um, I was probably in the wrong mindset in that meeting because all I, all I was hearing was your career is over. Mm. But and what became really apparent as I was able to get past that and go right, well I've got six months of football left. I know I, I don't want to miss another opportunity to, to play in a grand final and hopefully win one. So I've got to listen to these guys. I've got to do everything they say. I've got to do everything I know I can do because I'm um, 26 or 27 at this stage. have been through the injuries and, and kind of know um, or have a belief of what I, I know my body needs. So with all that together, um, you know, the, the sub rule, which I, I bloody hated the sub rule, but the sub rule kind of helped me, I think, because I... I'd get subbed off a lot of games in the third or the last quarter and, and save a bit of save a bit of my knee to <laughs> play the next game and missed a few games here and there and and we were you know had a really strong side that year and getting the grand final to play against Frio and um, I'm able to be there and, and play on the day and be part of that and then yeah it was just just unreal that it went from pretty devastating news to going okay here's the plan and the plan actually working that was you know another part of my life where I sit there and go well it, it can't be luck it can't be fate there's got to be someone up there looking out for me yes yeah and just, just actually seeing it for what it is because yeah, the mind will take it beyond that year really quickly too and you know to be able to use that time as an opportunity to be able to go week by week and just stay focused yep. on that I think is really important that's that's one of the the, the, the gifts in life we actually we miss, you know, where we've got our eyes uh, further down the track too consistently, you know, without actually, like, paying attention to the process as we go through. Yeah, yeah, and I don't, I don't think I was, you know, I, I look back at that time and I could have done things in that regard in terms of having my eyes pretty clearly in the focus. I could have done that better, but mm. as it is in the case, you know, in life, there's, we've always got multiple things going on and different stresses, so... Mm. Um, I dealt with it how I could at the time and, and yeah, I just, again, had really good support and really good people around me um, helping me shift back onto what I needed to and uh, and it worked out. Mm, amazing, mate. What was it like when you actually like, were playing in the grand final? Were you really nervous? Did you sleep much the night before though, or leading up to it? And, um, and did you play the game a lot in your mind before you actually got out there? I don't think I did, to be honest. I don't, I don't have real vivid recollections of it. it. It feels like a bit of a blur, but I think knowing that, okay, this is going to be my last game of footy helped to dispel any of the nerves. Mm-hmm. I don't remember being that nervous. I remember being probably more excited, to be honest, because it was, um, I had my family over, my, my two sisters, my mum, my, my grandparents, um, some cousins as well, and, and some good mates. So I was this opportunity to be around them um, for one last time in a football sense. Mm. And getting to the ground that morning, 
you know what Melbourne's like that time of year. It's just such a great buzz. Uh, and I'd, I'd always go out in the ground to, you know, probably an hour and a half before the game to have a run around and, and start to loosen up. And I'm, usually there's a couple of seagulls and a couple of security guards, but this time there's, um, you know, there's probably 40 or 50,000 people in the ground already mm. and all this entertainment going on. And I just remember being really excited and really buzzed to be able to play a part in that. Mm. Mate, um, yeah, well, look, you know, all the, the highs and lows you sort of went through to, to get you to that stage, you know, were obviously, you know, all evolving uh, for that moment. Do you, do you sort of uh, recollect any highlights of that game and sort of uh, some of the, uh, I suppose, the pivotal moments which really turned things your way and, and sort of getting through and actually hearing the final song and what that actually meant to you? Uh, I don't I don't remember a lot about the game itself. Uh, I remember goal Jack Gunston kicked because I was right next to him and I was kind of hoping he might, uh, he might pass it off to me. Um, <laughs> So there was that. There was uh, there was a moment where I thought I'd done my knee again because someone ran ran under me and took my knee out. Um, and then I remember getting subbed, which I was um, <laughs> I was so flat about because I thought oh, uh, I've only got, got you know I've only got one. This is my last game, and I'm going to miss the last quarter because I wanted to be out there. Yeah. Um, I remember Hodgie at half time. <laughs> I think if you talk to a lot of boys from that game, they'll. They'll talk about Hodgie's halftime speech where I, I can't remember how much we were leading by at halftime, but Hodgie was basically saying, I hope Frio come out and, and really fire up because we, um, <laughs> for whatever reason, he thought we needed to be fired up. And then Frio came out and kicked a few in a row, and all of a sudden it was a really close game, and everyone was looking around going, Hodgie, why the hell would you say that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I just remember watching that last quarter and um, and realising that we'd won it, and you know, being on the being on the bench with Brad Hill and Shawnee Burgoyne, and giving just just hugging every person I could find, basically, as we as we realised that we'd won the won the thing. Mm. Oh, mate, I remember my my young bloke was twelve, and he both walks, mm. and uh, yeah, it was it was tremendous to see. But I really felt, um, you know, for yourself and and. Um, and obviously, you know, you're going through what you've been through to actually get that result, and uh, you know, being able to to move out of the game from there, you know, was such a, a, a just reward for you. And uh, you know, I guess everyone um, deserves to experience something like that, whether it be you know local footy or whether it be something in life which you've got your heart set on or you you, you want to try and achieve and uh, have a goal and. Um, I, I think that that is available to all of us as well. If we if we set a task and we're determined enough to, to achieve it, we can really, you know, we can move past all the, the doubts and the blockages and so forth, and just stay committed to to what we want, you know. So so you know, just just with regards to watching your own journey, I just felt really um, really uh, good for you as a, as a person to be able to sort of get to that stage and. What I really want to know more of, mate, after that is you, you decided to go to Tanzania for six months. What was behind all that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's a good question. I, I, knowing that I was going to retire after that game, I'd been having conversations with Tim Clark, who I, the, um, my ex-teammate, who I'd lived with when I first moved to Melbourne. He was now coaching at Richmond with Damien Hardwick, who I'd also known from his time at Hawthorne and so mm-hmm. you know I knew I was going to go and um, 
and do some coaching at Richmond. Mm. Uh, I'd signed a two-year contract there because I I was also studying a Bachelor of Business throughout that time. So I had two years left of that and I thought, um, you know, I don't know if coaching's for me, so why don't I try it, finish my degree, I can get through that two years and then decide what to do from there. And I got through those two years, really, really loved my time at Richmond but thought I need I need to get out of football, even if it's momentarily, just to know if that's that is where I want to be long term, mm. and also to get some other life experiences. And um, so I'd had that in my mind, going, okay, what am I going to do for a year if it's not if it's not coaching, if it's not football? And the host family, uh, the Kings, who I'd lived with when I moved to Melbourne, their daughter had um, had this great this great change in her life and she she'd gone from you know part of a, a really strong family quite a wealthy family um had moved to sydney what she thought was doing what she thought was going to be her dream job and marketing somewhere and three or six months in she was just hating hating it hating life mm-hmm. and she decided with a friend that they were going to go and volunteer in tanzania in an orphanage and do that for three months and figure out what they wanted to do and she went and did that and came back uh what i perceived to be a, a really different person and you know she was she was an amazing person beforehand but she came back um seemingly really well balanced had had, had this experience and came back and studied nursing and she's now a nurse um from that experience I, I saw that and i i just really admired it and admired the fact that she'd had the the courage to do something out of her comfort zone, something really different, and um, instigate a pretty amazing change in life. So I, I saw that, and I thought, well, maybe that's what I'll do, and <laughs> so that's what I did. I found a found a little charity in um, Tanzania with the, a Maasai tribe on the border of Tanzania, uh, Tanzania in Kenya, mm. um, and said, look, I'm I'm going to come for six months and help you out however I can. So they. They enabled that to happen, and I, I just there were there was a high school, a primary school, and two primary schools in the area, and I would just work my way between the three schools each day, and took some soccer balls and some footies over there, and basically um, I didn't teach sport, but I just mucked around with these kids with the the footies and soccer balls for a couple of hours each day, and it was absolutely amazing. What what were you doing to live? Like like uh, were you living in like a uh, a pretty average accommodation and we are living on rice and stuff or um, what, what was it like <laughs> would have been a total different uh, uh, different change very, yeah. <laughs> very different where um there was a little it was kind of like a little cell block they built this uh house with with uh a little shower and and that was it and a bed so because they'd had a few volunteers beforehand so I, I lived in this little um looked like a cell block at, at one of the primary schools and the teacher and her son at the school um, lived at the school, so we kind of lived together in this little this little area. And it was a uh, the whole area they were subsistence farmers, so little plots of land where they grew tomatoes, corn, um, different things like that. And we basically lived off rice and, and veggies. Um, but the, <laughs> my uh, my great recollection was there was there was one one day where they'd slaughter an animal, and might have been Tuesday. So they'd, they'd slaughter this animal, hang it up at the 
what they called the butcher, but it was just this wooden shack on the side of a road and you could come and buy some meat um, off this goat or whatever it was. So you knew you wanted to get in early because <laughs> you didn't want to get there Wednesday and try and pick the scraps off this thing. Mm. So we had we had meat once a week, but it was really um, very simple, you know, showering um, out of a bucket. and uh, It was just, I don't know, I, it's really hard to explain, but very, very simple living, um, but... But nothing wrong with it at all. Oh. I, I'd learned a lot um, about myself in that time more than anything. No doubt, mate. I I, I was in a village in um, in um, India, and same thing. Yeah. Pump, pump water out of a well, all that sort of stuff. But like, yeah. you just lose all your um, uh, connection with entitlement, don't you? And you just think, okay, this yeah. is what it is. Once you once you, you you lose that attachment, then you just flow with what's going on and. And you just you just come come from uh, um, you know a, a high level of expectation back to a humbleness again. I think that's really really key and important. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, well that that was a big a big part of it. And I remember a couple of really good lessons I got were um, one was the culture there. You'd walk, you know, you, it's in the middle of nowhere, and you'd you'd be walking. I'd I'd have to walk seven k's to get to this high school, so I'd I'd walk that each day. And, you know, in, in Australia, um, probably less so in Queensland, I feel, just from our time up there, but certainly in, in Melbourne here, if you're walking past someone on the road, you know, everyone's got their head down. Any, no one barely acknowledges someone else. Yeah. Whereas it was the culture here that if you walk past someone on the road, you, you stop and you have a 10, 15-minute conversation <laughs> with yeah. them to find out who they are, what they're doing or <laughs> where they're going. And um, so going through that and, you know, the engagement with people even though you could barely speak the language you just you just had to do it and there was that side of it but also the the gratitude side because it's it i met so many people through my time there i ended up going through uh through kenya and uganda with a an aussie fella who just out of the blue got in touch with me to say hey i hear you're i hear you nearby if you want to come and hang out with me um and my family then you're very welcome to and and I ended up spending time with him. He, he runs a charity in Nairobi, and he's become a really good mate of mine. Mm. Um, this happened to me everywhere I went, and so the, the generosity of people that you know, I'm I'm this strange bloke who they barely knew, but they were they were willing to put up a bed for me, give me a meal, give me whatever I needed to, and it's um, it's just amazing when you have that level of generosity from other people, how that makes you feel, and then. You just want to reciprocate that. Uh, it's the, the pure essence of humanity, isn't it? It's been lost in this yeah. country in many ways, you know. Um, yeah. I'm very lucky where I live. You walk down the street, you bump into people and uh, you have those long conversations um, consistently. But, um, yeah, but yeah uh, living in Melbourne and those environments where it's just all... Um, uh, you know about the uh, the survival. I suppose more than anything, yeah. people have got into this real survival mode, and that's not how we're meant Correct. to be living as humans. We're meant to be, you know, supporting each other and, and doing things to collaborate. And that's as, this is where we can start to make changes. I guess you know we can learn so much off those people that have got so little because that's really the pure essence of it all. I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you, mate. It's it's a great. It's I mean, it's a bit. I found it. I found myself quite ashamed and embarrassed that I had to learn it from people who um, who had next to nothing. But I'm so grateful that I did because uh, it is so important to us. 
And they would have had a hard time finding a bed for you to fit into, I'd imagine. <laughs> I, I grew a beard for that year and, um, you know, I'm, I'm the, I was the only white guy within 50 k's of this place. So <laughs> I'd be walking down the road and people would just stop and stare at this, this red-bearded top white guy going, what? they're probably thinking, what the hell, how on earth did this bloke get here? <laughs> oh, shit, unbelievable. But mate, yeah, isn't, isn't that isn't that amazing? Um, you know, just just to have that sense of wonder because they're looking at someone and seeing someone that they've never even laid eyes on someone similar to you before. I would have thought just seeing that yeah. with, with, with amazement. It was certainly that. Yeah, you had to you had to get used to being stared at. That's for sure. <laughs> as I, as I'm sure you had in India too. Oh mate, it was incredible. Like I, I had. Uh, just an unbelievable experience there. I was like in such a good place myself, walking along the streets where these wild dogs are just barking at you, but they're on, on chains. <laughs> uh, but I just wasn't flinched, you know, and um, and just, 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 yeah, it was just incredible. You know, the ones that could speak English, you had long, deep conversations about basic stuff, but it was so heart-centered. It was, was really, really beautiful. And I, I remember coming back that trip on the plane and thinking, I just want to go back there. You, you, yeah. you know, uh, you can just live without fear, stress, anxiety, all that type of stuff, you know. But I, I, getting back to what you said before, you know, I think if you can still do your daily maintenance, you can live in this in this environment without that dominating your life as well. Yeah, uh, you can. That's the trap is, I guess, falling into the environment you live in and... and as you know, when you're there in that environment, it's, it's easy because that's mm. what's all around you. Mm. And I remember having a great fear when I came back from that year away that I was I was going to forget all that and slip back into what I had. And yep. I certainly have at times, but I've been more mindful, um, you know, just of, of not – my wife said it to me today, actually, funnily enough, like you don't have to overload yourself with all these – expectations and stresses and things you feel like you have to do mm. um and just now having kids i find myself kicking myself more often than not but you know just just simple things like having a day with with my daughter and um looking at leaves in the garden all day if that's all it is if that's mm. if that's all it is that's pretty awesome um rather than feeling like i've got to tick all the you know 10 different boxes for the day and yeah. do things it's about it's about just um, being quite content in the little things. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And, and realising that those stresses are impermanent, they're, they're not going to hang around and be able to, you know, get them over and done with and move on, I think, because that's uh, where we get trapped above the shoulders, you know, we get stuck in that tension and uh, it's not yeah. healthy. Mate, I'm, I'm interested too uh, with regards to footy. So you got back into footy and coaching and, and that sort of thing and that, that was like another four or five-year journey for you. What, what were some of the highlights with regards to that? Well, again, I I remember um, coming back and going and asking myself the question: you know, Do I do I want to go back into footy or do I not? And Chris Newman, who had been at Richmond in my time there, was now at Hawthorne and was going to be coaching the Box Hill team. And I I'd, I'd been in a real as I said, I loved my time at Richmond because I was in a, a coaching group who where I felt really valued. I felt like I could make. Uh, have an impact in the environment and um, and I really enjoyed it and I knew going to work with Chris at Box Hill and Hawthorne was going to be, we're going to have a similar thing so I jumped at that opportunity to, to be part of that and um, 
in 2018, we won the VFL Premiership and it was just amazing because we had a lot of guys in that program were part-time footballers, part-time coaches, but the whole environment that Newey had, had created and enabled was just, everyone felt really valued, everyone felt a strong part of it, whether they played in the, the game or not or played any games or not. Mm-hmm. So that that achievement of the side winning that flag um, and just the way that we did it and the way that how, how tight the team felt, that that really stands out to me. That was a, a great experience, a great year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, getting the opportunity to coach Box Hill myself after Newey had taken up an assistant role at Hawthorne, um, this was the first side I'd ever coached on my own. And I, <laughs> no doubt, did a lot of things wrong and did some things right and, and learned a heck of a lot about myself in the process. But that, you know, that opportunity to coach and and be in that seat and um, and be part of that was was a really strong learning uh, opportunity for me. So th- those two things were the real the real highlights for me. Yeah. Chris Newman, yeah, no, good country lad from Kybram. Uh, uh, no, Chris, Chris Newman. Oh, no, not Chris that played at Richmond. Different Chris. No, Chris, no, Chris Hume, I think, might have played at oh, Richmond. Chris, Chris Newman, who, who'd captained their, their side for a while. And, yep, yeah. Um, he's, right. he's still at Hawthorne now with, with Sammy Mitchell. Yes, gotcha. Right, okay. Yep, yeah, gotcha, mate. Unreal. So, so you probably would never have thought that you may have got to being a senior coach. Um, what was it like for you to be able to sort of lead a heap of guys and probably would have had a, a few ex-AFL players coming back and playing with you as well? Yeah, yeah, well, we had... Um, it's a challenging environment, the VFL, because you, when you're in an aligned team, because you've got uh, AFL-listed guys, so Hawthorne players at the time, who they're obviously aiming to be upper level. So they, they don't... And rightly so, they don't really want to be there playing with you, but that's mm. their, their stepping stone. Mm. And then you've got the part-time guys, the VFL-listed guys, who... You know, for a lot of them, that's as high a level as they're going to play. So they're they're extremely motivated and um, challenged to be there. So it's a it's a really interesting environment. Um, and yeah, not one I ever thought I wanted to do, but I knew that if I wanted to figure out whether coaching was what I wanted to do long term, that that was going to be the best way to do that. Mm-hmm. Amazing, mate. Um... I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued with regards to your transition out of football and, and into doing what you're doing now. Like, did you think that you were going to be like a long-term football uh, employee or were you, were you sort of always <laughs> aiming to get out of the system and do something else? I thought, I'd always thought that I'd end up outside of footy, but I, I thought I'd, footy is really, you know, since being 19 and moving to Melbourne till, till I am... Um, you know, 2020 when I, I left, that's that's all I'd known and that's all I had done. So as is the case with a lot of things, it's hard to remove yourself from something when that's all you know. Mm. Um, so I, I always thought I'd end up out of it, but I, I thought I might be in it for a bit longer um, until, you know, the whole COVID environment came along and um, like a lot of people, I lost my job in 2020. So mm. went from thinking this is what I'm going to be doing and doing for a while to saying, well, I've got to figure something else out. Um, I think pretty pretty fortunately living in Australia where I lost my job but then I was able to be at home and getting government assistance. So basically get paid to be at home looking after my daughter mm. for 
for a few months ended up being a massive blessing. Um, my wife, Rachel's a nurse, so she went to work full time, and we we kind of just swapped swapped roles for a while, mm-hmm. um, and had to what we were saying before, you know, being being present and being um, yeah, just being present with what you are. I'd, I'd probably never been that working mm-hmm. in working in football where it's weekends, it's nights, it's all you think about and all you do. Um, and probably a bit embarrassing and not having a lot of time with my family to being around my family full time. It was just amazing to be around my daughter who was, you know, 15 months at the time and being able to be a full time dad. So I had that opportunity for four or five months and then I, I think she got, Georgia got sick of me and I probably got a little bit sick of her. So <laughs> I decided to, uh, to get um, some work and did a bit of work in commercial construction for a while. Um, and throughout the time, I've just been having conversations with people, and, and this is where the football, the football environment was so good to me that I'd, I'd met so many good people along the way that I could come back, circle back, and have conversations with about, hey, um, you know, where, where should I head? What are the questions I should ask? And through some of those chats with people, I got put onto. Um, Put, put on to some people at Bunnings and it was really about, I'd, I'd studied a Bachelor of Business, had done a major in Human Resources so I thought oh, I might suss that out and I was just picking people's brains um, and what I thought was a call about just asking some questions to get a better idea of what Human Resources was, I turned into a job opportunity for six months and then that's that's where I'm, I'm still there at the business and it's been a real, a real blessing. Mm, you enjoying it? I am, mate. I am. It's. Um, I've never been in a in a true corporate environment, and I don't think I ever really want to be, to be honest. Mm. Um, I think Bunnings has this great middle ground between sport and what I'm used to, and you know, being part of a team and everyone genuinely pulling in the right direction, mm. um, while also being a business. So, everyone I talk to who comes from corporate or works in Bunnings and has been in corporate, they say, "Yeah, this is not." This is not corporate, but you don't want to be in a corporate when when you've got something like this. Mm, yeah, that's that's pretty uh, pretty relevant. And I, I've spoken to people that have actually worked there at various locations, and they actually really enjoy it. So they're doing something right. Yeah, I think it's it's something pretty simple though. It's it's how how we, um, as a as somebody who works there, you just feel valued. You always feel valued for um, contributing and what you're doing. It's um, yeah, it's as simple as it is. Just making people feel feel like they've got some worth, um, and they get you know they get that sort of reputation. Mm, a key ingredient for anything in life, mate. You know, whether it be schoolwork, footy club, whatever. If someone can feel Correct. safe and valued, that's so important. That's all a human really needs and wants, isn't it? And there's so much disconnection. Yep. You know, I always like to use the term. You know, make your business a transformational one, not just a transactional one. There's not many that listen, you know. Um, yeah. If you can help an individual be better than what they were when they arrived, then that helps the world. But if you can just help them by giving them a paycheck and they're not uh, not engaged, it's worthless, so I think, at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah I couldn't agree more. Mate, um, it's been an amazing chat, and uh, your wife's probably going to um, be... Uh, wanting you to go and spend some time with her and the kids so <laughs> better leave you with it mate and um the football will be on too so you'd love to have that to go and um 
tune in to. So, Max, um, really grateful for the conversation and your, your all honesty. I'm sure lots of people are going to get uh, a lot from this conversation and um, um, certainly, um, you know, a lot of the uh, the wisdom and, 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 and learning of your own journey um, is so relevant in uh, in modern life, that's for sure, with regards to overcoming challenges and, um, you know, making the most of, uh, of having a positive attitude. So I'm really grateful, mate. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Aaron. It's uh, yeah, been been good to go through it with you and, and connect and have that conversation. So I appreciate you having me on.